Hey guys, welcome to the DIY Sportsman Podcast. This is our very first episode. I'm excited to introduce the podcast. We're going to go over a ton of uh, interesting topics, somewhat similar to how the YouTube channel has gone for DIY Sportsman, but we're also going to delve into a whole bunch of different topics. So I'd like to introduce uh, Bobby Boswell, who's going to be the co-host of this podcast. Go ahead and uh, introduce yourself and give the audience a little bit of background about yourself. All right, so most of you guys probably know me. Um as Boudreaux on most of the forums um, from my YouTube channel. Um, a little bit about me right now, currently live in Salt Lake City, um, just outside of there. I was born and raised in central Missouri. I've got a bachelor's of science degree in fisheries and wildlife science. Um, so I am a contractor uh, that works at Salt Lake City International for um, wildlife control. Um, so I'm a wildlife biologist by trade, and I've been doing that for about five years now. What kind of projects are you working on right now, or what's kind of some of the more interesting topics or projects you've worked on over the years? So in the past year, um, moving to Salt Lake City, what I do now is basically I do um, wildlife mitigation at an airport. So at Salt Lake City International Airport, um, I try to prevent things like the Miracle on the Hudson. Um, so I work with controlling wildlife around those areas. Um, in the past, you know, I've done quite a few things from um, beaver trapping uh, for animal damage management, coyote trapping, done urban deer work. Um, wildlife diseases is a big thing I did for a while, um, specifically with feral swine for the most part, as well as some rabies. And what states were those in? Uh, that was all in Virginia mostly. Okay. Interesting. And then to give a little bit of background about myself, for those who maybe aren't familiar with the YouTube channel, my name is Garrett. I have been basically hunting since I was 12. I've had a YouTube channel called DIY Sportsman that started up probably in, uh, I'd say 2006, 2007 or so, but it didn't start getting popular until about 2011. Um, I do primarily deer hunting and turkey hunting here in Minnesota and also in Wisconsin. I actually spent quite a bit of time in Wisconsin growing up, so I'm pretty familiar with both of the two states. And then in addition to that, I uh, like to go out to out west of Colorado every now and then to get a little elk hunting or mule deer hunting in. Still haven't been successful yet, but hopefully this year will be the year. Well, if you're around long enough, we can bring you out here to Utah and we can go uh, chase mule deer and elk out here. Yeah, definitely. What's the uh, non-resident cost for a tag out there? Uh, it's about three eighty-five for a tag, um, and you can get um, an elk tag. It's a, any elk tag for a certain unit, uh, which is called the Wasatch Front. So it's basically east of Salt Lake. You can get that over the counter, and they're unlimited. Um, you got to put in for mule deer. Um, for the most part, they do have some leftover tags. Um, but this year, you know, I didn't draw a mule deer tag, so I went to buy a leftover tag, and they sold out in less than two minutes. Really? And yeah. that was – so the elk tag you said was three eighty five. Yeah. And that's everything? There's no additional, like, license fees or anything? It's $65 for a non-resident license. That's not bad at all. No, not at all. I mean, Colorado's 615. Wow. Um, and I think, you know, other states are, are even more than that, not including some of the application fees that you don't get refunded with some of those states. Yeah, especially if you're putting in for points. Right. But anyway, for the people that are listening to the podcast, we're primarily going to be focused on white-tailed deer for the purposes of this podcast. That's what both of us have quite a bit of experience in. And some of the topics that we're going to talk about on this podcast would include gear as a main focus. So tree stands, saddles. He has a, Bobby has a huge background in saddles, more so than me. I've only been doing it for about a year and a half. 
we each shoot both traditional bows and compounds. So it's not like we started with one and switched with the uh, switched to the other. We both, you know, at the same time are concurrently using both type of, of archery tackle. We're going to go over some DIY equipment builds, kind of go over like when it makes sense, when it makes sense to actually just buy something as well as go into the DIY aspect of hunts. So learning how to scout, what resources to use, you know, handheld GPSs or use your cell phone, um, how to use aerial maps, topos, that type of thing. We're also going to try and get some interesting guests on the podcast. And then some other interesting topics that we're hoping to dive into a little bit would be like blood trailing. Um, you have a lot of experience with your personal dog. You want to just jump in real quickly, give a brief overview of kind of how long you've been doing that? Yeah, so I'm a, I'm red, green, colorblind, so it makes it pretty difficult for me to, to be able to find and see blood to be able to track animals. Um, you know, I learned this at a really young age when I was, you know, following my uncle, you know, after he chewed a deer and we'd be tracking a deer, you know, he could see blood at, you know, five, 10 yards and we'd be able to follow the trail. Me, I'm wiping every leaf that's out there with anything that looks wet, trying to determine whether it was blood or not. So it just got real difficult for me to track. So when I was in college, I was exposed to a, a dachshund, um, that had really never blood trail before, but we put it on a blood trail and it probably, the deer probably went probably 80 to 90 yards and it only took that dog just a couple of minutes to find it. So I was really intrigued by that. And then when I moved to Virginia, I actually picked up a miniature long haired dachshund for this specific reason and started training him at about eight weeks old and really just started in the house, um, using deer blood and started in the kitchen floor on the linoleum and would just put a smear every two or three inches and put a couple little pieces of hot dogs in between there and just went from there and, you know, probably maybe 12 or 14 weeks, I got them outside, started exposing them to, you know, more distractions like creek crossings and stuff like that, just to be able to get him, um, to be able to think on his own, to be able to figure out a track. And he's done it enough. Now you can really tell when he's on a track or when he loses a track, you know, he'll lift his head up and be able to, he'll make a wide circle until he can cut the track again. And he's got, he's got a lot of deer under his belt. Um, and probably one of, he's got my biggest buck that I've killed with a bow under his belt. And then, uh, he took probably his best track. He got a doe that was, the trail was about 16 hours old and probably had close to a quarter inch of rain on it. Um, she went about 300 yards and it took him probably about three minutes to make that track. Hmm. So I was really impressed by that one. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, right now in Minnesota, I don't think it's legal to – it's kind of like a weird gray area with the law. I know there's some other states that are like that too where you can – you can, you know, there's no law against taking your dog out into the woods to take a walk with it. So if you just happened to find your deer, you'd be completely fine. However, if the deer happened to still be alive, then technically you'd be hunting with the aid of a dog, which is illegal. Yeah, Virginia was one of those states that was that way too. You know, as a tracking dog, he had to be on a leash, and I had to stop at any property boundary. But if I just turned him loose to run deer, because it's legal to run deer with dogs in Virginia, he could run over anybody's property and do whatever he needed to. But because he was trying to recover a wounded animal, he had more restrictions, which I thought was really odd. And like you said, there's a lot of states that are out there that do that, which to me is interesting because as sportsmen, it's our job to make the best attempt to recover a wounded animal that we might have or an animal that we shot. Um, so why restrict us on you know, using dogs and things like that? Yeah, so definitely. hopefully that's something we can get into and talk about more. Yeah, that'd be interesting, especially for me. I'd like to love to learn more about that. One of my friends is training his dog to try and get more into it as well. Um, so 
why don't you tell me a little bit about kind of how long you've been hunting with a saddle? Because I know there's not a whole ton of information outside the Saddle Hunter Forum um, and your YouTube videos, but you obviously have a large background in using a saddle versus a traditional tree stand. And we'll probably have an entire podcast or two just surrounding saddle hunting, but how about just a brief overview? Yeah, so I've been saddle hunting for uh, 12 years now. I guess 2005 was when I started saddle hunting my first year of college. You know, you stick two bow hunters in a dorm room that's about 20 by 20 and you start cramming desks and refrigerators and beds and stuff like that in there and you don't have much room to put anything else in so that's when i started looking for something that was just packable really easy um you know i could bring it in the dorm room not have to leave it in the truck worry about somebody stealing a tree stand out of my truck something like that um so i started looking at saddles and and there was nobody else out there that had really used saddles or put the information out there about saddles so when i narrowed down my option to the trophy line tree saddle at the time you know, I just got an archery talk and put a post out, you know, what do you guys want to know about this? Cause I thought it was a, a piece of equipment that was really good that nobody knew much about. So I just kind of wanted to spread the word and, you know, it's, it's gone from there. Um, like I said, my YouTube channel really caught notice. Um, you know, now I'm working with arrow hunter, um, and we just released a Kestrel with the design of it. So I've been working on that for three years of that model. Um, we've been testing it. So we just released it a couple days ago. Yeah, no, that's been really popular, and I noticed and liked that that one is quite a bit more stripped-down feeling compared to some of the previous models that you had. Because one of yeah. the, cause I had made, of course, the sit-drag modification with a rock harness, and that's what I had used to saddle hunt last year. And it seems like with the upgrades that you guys have made for the Kestrel, it's basically every advantage plus, you know, you have the confidence of knowing that it was put together right and safe. Yeah, exactly. That's, you know, that's one of the biggest things for us is, you know, we try to design the safest thing we can that's accommodate hunters. Um, you know, there's a lot of people out there doing DIY modifications and modifying sit drags and stuff like that. And, you know, honestly, the sit drag's not designed to be used anything above ground level. Um, so, you know, we wanted to be able to reach to that market and, you know, use our, you know, so Arrow Hunters background is the parent company of New Tribe. Um, they've been building professional and recreational arborist saddles for 30 years. Um, so they have experience of stitching and safety. So we wanted to be able to bring that to the hunting market, especially then to that slim down, uh, minimalist style saddles. Awesome. Yeah. And so one of the things we also want to do on this podcast is just take a gear category, say it's tree stands, say it's, uh, you know, climbing sticks, whatever it might be, GPSs, and basically just go through and just pound out that one topic and just give our thoughts on a bunch of different things that are on the market yeah, that's that's probably one of the most excited things that I have about this podcast that we're going to look at is, you know, there's a lot of podcasts out there that talk about certain products or you just look at one specific product. But I'm I'm looking for us, us sitting down and, you know, talking about all the different models of climbing sticks, um, you know, hang on stands versus ladder stands versus climbing stands and the benefits of each. And, mm-hmm. you know, even bino harnesses, for that matter, something like that, specific pieces of gear releases. Um, just laying them all out there and, and talking about the different styles and what's going to be beneficial and why, and using our reviews that we've done before um, to really give some in-depth look into the, some of those things. Yeah, and I imagine there's going to be certain things where on the podcast we can only give a certain amount of information, the rest of it needs to be seen, and then we can always link to additional video content that we might have on YouTube. Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, and then just the the scouting resources, you know, from our, our experience that we've had before um, to what's better. You know, whether that's digital, um, you know, topo maps, you know, a lot of people nowadays, unfortunately, can't read topographical maps. And it's mm-hmm. mind blowing to somebody like me who uses them quite a bit. Um, 
you know, so many, so many, so many people have gone to digital scouting, um, things like Onyx Maps and places like that. So it's going to be really good to be able to break that stuff down and look into more depth of, you know, different types of scouting, pre-season, post-season, during season, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, knowing what to look for. And, yeah, like you said, how the technology has kind of evolved over time. It seems like a lot of people right now are kind of jumping in and, and using the apps and stuff, which I use. But I also had the background beforehand of knowing how to read a topo, knowing how to use a compass. And there were certain things, I think, that are lost by people that didn't have that background necessarily. So, yeah, it's definitely... Yeah, absolutely. And especially with the growth of GIS in the world. Um, you know, GIS, every, almost every county out there now has an online version of GIS. So for some of those, um, you know, more old school people, that's basically a digital plot map where you can click on it and it tells you who owns the land and all that versus having to go down to the courthouse and get a plot map and then be able to sit down and look through it like that. And now you can have, add the layers of... Um, you know, aerial photos, topographic maps on top of that GIS layer to see mm-hmm. what the property looks like and where the boundaries exactly are. Oh, yeah. I've done that a ton just to break down a county and find out where exactly the boundaries are for all the public lands. Um, yeah. and, you know, you can pay for that information, but a lot of times what people don't realize is you can get most of the information you can pay for for free. It just, you got to know where to look and you got to use a little bit more of your time to get there. Yeah, exactly. You know, that's that's kind of the point behind this is the DIY part of it. Mm-hmm. You know, you can do that yourself and you don't have to pay for somebody else to do it for you. Yeah, it may be a little bit easier um, to pay somebody, but a lot of guys out there, especially with their hunting budgets, are a little strapped for money. So you, every time they can do something DIY, they can save money and things like that. So that's what I'm really looking forward to being able to help people with. Right, definitely. And it seems like, you know, in regards to people doing DIY hunts, it generally speaking tends to also lend itself toward people wanting to hunt mobile. And you and I both have quite a bit of experience hunting mobile and kind of finding the balance between what piece of gear might be lightweight, but at the same time, not so awkward to use because of its lightweightness and trying to find that great balance, which can be different for a little bit, every little bit of every situation. Yeah, exactly. And now, of course, we can't, as far as going out west, you obviously live out west now, but that's a relatively recent move, right? Before that, you lived out east. I live in Minnesota right now. I do quite a bit of hunting, Wisconsin and Minnesota. But we can both kind of speak to going on the out west hunts from the perspective of a flatlander trying to plan. There's a lot of great podcasts out there right now that are strictly western hunting based, and they do a great job of it. But there's not always a lot of information for the flatlander who's looking to go out west. Yeah, who's people who've went through that transition. And, you know, there's a lot of things that, you know, you listen to, you know, the Western podcasts that talk about, you know, hunting out here. And they're, you know, extremely more um, gear related on what they use out here, but they're dedicated to that. And there's a lot of gear that you use back east that can easily be used out west. You don't have to go and buy all new gear. Um, and do things like that. And that's kind of the benefit is, you know, we both kind of went through that transition a couple of times now. I know you've hunted out in Colorado at least once about to go out again. Um, and this will be my second year out here in Utah. It'll be my third time hunting out here. Um, but yeah, you just being able to, to figure out what gear you need and what not to pack. I know a lot of Eastern guys really overpack when they come out here. Um, cause they, they're honestly, they're expecting the worst, which they should because they're, you know, thousands of miles away from their house. But in all reality, depending on where you go, you know, here in Utah, we don't get as far back like in the wilderness as you might in Colorado. Um, so for here, you know, you don't have to overly pack a ton compared to what you might in Colorado. Yeah, that brings up a really good point. One of my 
great friends and, and hunting buddies, Matt, he always brings, he was an Eagle Scout, so he always packs, you know, two is one and one is none kind of mentality. And we took a, he goes out to Colorado, Colorado with me, but we also went on a Boundary Waters trip for bear hunting a couple of years ago. And I had all my gear packed, and this is a canoe trip, so you can pack a little bit more gear than normally you'd be able to carry. And I think what I had for gear, he probably had two and a half times as much stuff. Um, which, of course, the benefit of that is if something does break, you have something to replace it with. But on the downside, it's a lot more work. You know, the extra portages, or if you are packing in for a hunt, it's the extra weight. So there's always a balance. Um, finding a piece of gear that can serve multiple uses is always a great thing. And then Absolutely. in terms of like knowing what to pack food-wise, if you've never gone on an overnight type hunt, that's something that's pretty new. Another thing that I found that's always been uh, a bit of something that takes a little bit of getting used to is just when you actually start spending days and days sleeping out in the woods on your own, not necessarily with a group. Sometimes you break off a little bit, just having to go through the mental game of staying yeah. in it. It's, it's not something that you normally encounter out East unless you're yeah, those doing are... all day sets day after day after day in the rut. Yeah, those are some really good points. You know, I've I've got a buddy who hunts out here, and he's been hunting out here all his life. But he's good for about three days mentally. After three days, he really starts to crumble. You know, even mm -hmm. if, you know, for example, this year he's he's we got about a, a two hundred inch buck found in his unit, um, and he actually had it at twelve yards this weekend. Oh. Um, but he was after the same deer last year um, and blew a couple stocks on it and kind of lost it mentally, and ended up just shooting a little dink buck because he was frustrated. Um, because he lost it mentally after about four or five days. So he's one of those ones that really crumbles mentally. And it's really good to have a hunting partner there to be able to help you through things like that. Um, and the food aspect for me, that's one I'm still struggling with. I'm a real picky eater and I don't eat a lot of food, but when I go in the mountains, I have to force myself to eat food. So I have to find food that I'm willing to eat once I pack back in the mountains. And I've really struggled with that and still I'm still struggling with it. Yeah, I found that to be the case too. Where I'm not not necessarily hungry, but I force myself to eat. Um, and last year, the last time we went to Colorado, I only ended up packing about 1,500 calories a day, which was on the very light end of what I should have been eating, obviously. And yeah. uh, like I said, I wasn't necessarily hungry, but just knowing performance-wise, I still should have packed more food. And that's one of the changes I'm going to be making uh, for this year. So like when I do take out take that trip out west we'll probably go over the gear that i'm going to be bringing for that trip and then when i come back obviously we're probably going to go over what i liked what i didn't like and give opinions on that yeah that's and that's the biggest thing you know even eastern hunting i always carried a, a pencil and a right and a rain notepad and you know as i was like climbing the tree or sitting in the tree and i had a thought about you know some way to trim gear or something i might need i'd write it down in that notepad and i do the exact same thing now that i even do in backpack hunting you know, I'll write down all my thoughts and stuff. And when I come back from a hunt, I'll reread through all those and figure out that, you know, I may not have used a piece of gear that was, you know, a pound, pound and a half. So I can cut that out of my pack. So this year, you know, I just weighed my pack, um, a couple days ago and what I'm guessing it's going to take to get me through like a five day hunt. And I'm looking at like 37 pounds is what I'm looking at. So I've really trimmed it last year. It was around 49. So I've tried to between last year and this year, try to trim a lot of weight for that time period. But you also don't have camera gear, right? Right. Yeah, that's my yeah. big thing is I don't, yeah, I think I don't pack a lot of you, camera gear. When you look at my gear list, I think the electronics take up like seven or eight pounds out of my yeah, gear. Yeah, I just added a, an Anchor uh, USB 
um, power pack to mine and it's going to be like a pound and a half. So I'm going to be, you know, pushing that 40 pound mark now. Yeah. I got one of those too. Yeah. I'm probably going to go to the, the Onyx maps for public land and private land. Um, so I need to be able to charge my phone cause I'm probably just going to use my phone as my GPS compared to using a, a standard handheld GPS. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing's that one thing that's for sure is when you're up in a, a tree stand, for example, you definitely got a lot of time to think about what you can make in terms of gear improvements. Yeah. And especially evaluate your gear better because you're, you know, like you said, you're sitting there waiting so you can, you know, evaluate stuff a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. And sometimes you got what you think is such a great idea at home and then you finally get the chance to implement it and it just does not work at all. So I think think everybody's been through that. (laughs) I I think I go through it more than most. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I am pretty excited though with the, uh, one of the things I just made recently, I don't remember if you, I don't know if you've seen it or not. I posted it on the Saddle Hunter forum, but I had made my own climbing sticks. They were yeah. very similar to the muddy ones, with the exception of being a little bit longer and lighter. So I'm pretty excited. I've used them a ton in the backyard so far, but I'm really excited to actually get out and use those. Yeah, that double step system that you CNC machined out is a. Uh it's pretty slick and especially you know my biggest thing about the muddies is they're heavy and they're a little short Mm -hmm. um so you did you beat with both of those you added a little bit of length in between the steps and you made them lighter um so to me it seems like it's going to be a good system you know i'm interested to see how it works out for you this year right and obviously not something that you know all all the population would benefit from i met uh, a lady at a 3d traditional archery shoot not too long ago who had trouble using the standard lone wolf sticks because the steps are spaced too far apart one of the challenges that you know, the manufacturer has is they're not trying to make a stick that's optimized for any one person. They're trying to fit a stick or build a stick that works for 95% of the people that could be in their target market, which means that it's only going to be optimized for, you know, the people at the higher end of the weight range and the people that are optimized for, you know, 15 inch step height or whatever it ends up being. Yeah. And I mean, even from saddles, it's kind of the same perspective, you know, saddles not necessarily designed for everybody who hunts, you know, especially in that style of hunting. Um, but we try to want to cater specifically to that, you know, as many of those saddle hunters as we can. Mm-hmm. So that was part of the the thing behind designing is you kind of had to keep that in mind when you design the product. Yeah. I think a lot of times when people talk about building your own gear, the main driving factor behind it is trying to save costs. They'll look at something that they think is really great and say, oh, well, I can't afford that, but I'm going to try and build it myself. And whenever I try and look at making a piece of gear it's usually not the cost that ends up being the driving factor it's usually more of a factor of can i make something that's better than what's currently on the market because if not then i might as well just if it's something i really want i'm better off just saving my money a lot of times and buying what it is unless i can make it better or more optimized to myself versus something that's generalized for the population and that's and that's one thing that i think really gonna gonna help us with this podcast is we both have that at that drive basically you know, to look at a product and say, okay, you know, this is their finished product, but to us, it may be 80%, you know, can we take it that extra 20% mm-hmm. and make it a perfect product or what needs to be done to make it a perfect product? You know, having worked with the saddles, you know, I do the same thing when I look at anything, vinyl harness or anything like that. I look at a product and how they designed it. And I was like, you know, why did they design it this way? Why didn't they do that? And then I'll modify it that way and, you know, to make the product better basically. Yeah, and as anybody who's watched my YouTube channel before probably knows, there's very little, there's very few pieces of gear that I buy that I don't modify at some point. Yeah, 
and that, and that's and that's a really good thing is you know just being able to modify it um, and especially just trying to modify it safely that's the most important thing for sure. Yeah, and I've definitely learned a lot of things too just from reading comments and you know posting on forums. You get feedback that you don't necessarily think of yourself in terms of safety. You get like an arborist or somebody who will say, "Well, this is how we do it in the industry because of this reason." So um, we had mentioned before that we both shoot traditional and compound bows. So do you want to just give a brief overview of what you have for both a compound and what you have for your collection of trad bows and how often you use kind of one or the other? Yeah. So right now I've got a, it's actually a 2016 PSA Decree um, HD 32 inch. So it's a 32 inch bow with HD cams. It's actually the year before PSE made it. Um, brethren, um, in Southern Virginia, he's on archery talk. He actually built the bow with HD cams on the smaller riser. So that's what I'm using for a compound. It's, I shoot 27 and a half inch draw and it's about 64 pounds. I shoot a 50, 60 pound bow. Um, I suffered a shoulder injury in softball, recreational softball about two years ago. And it really took a number on my shoulder. So I've had to drop bow weight for that. Uh, my traditional bow, I've got a, I just picked up a 17 inch Hoyt Satori and a trade. Um, so I've been shooting it a little bit and then I've got a fair number of Osage orange, um, longbows that I've built, um, basically from start cutting the tree all the way through the finished product. So I think I've got 14 finished bows sitting in there. Oh, wow. Um, a lot of them I haven't shot, but maybe a few times because you build a bow, you find one you really like to shoot and then you build the next bow hoping it's going to be better than that one and sometimes it doesn't always work mm-hmm. so my go-to bow um osage orange bow in there is a 52 inch um bend through the handle so it bends all the way to the handle there's no rigid section of the handle so in about the last inch of draw i can actually feel that bow flex against where my palm is resting on it hmm. um, and it's 52 pounds at 27 inches and you know it's a seven eighths of an inch wide at the handle so it's a super skinny bow i've killed a couple deer and a bobcat and some other things with it um but it's probably my go-to bow if i had to pick a bow up traditional wise to hunt with i'd pick it up over uh, my hoyt satori right now nice yeah that's always that's always cool i mean at some point i like to make that type of bow a self bow but right now i'm just not quite there yet i had always you made a board bow didn't you yeah, a laminated bow, just two piece. So I had a bamboo backed Epe longbow with some defects right. and reflex in it. Sixty eight inch, which was for me somewhat hard to maneuver in the tree stand. Um so then I had planned on making a shorter longbow, but then I actually now have a striker new breed RK one, which is new for this year. It's an aluminum riser recurve, uh sixteen inch riser, but the whole mass weight of the bow is just two pounds, so it has a similar feel to what you would get with a wooden bow. Um, but then at the same time, it's also got some of the advantages of being able to tune the bow to the arrow instead of always the other way around where you're tuning the arrow to the bow. So you get a lot more flexibility in terms of, you know, off the shelf or with a rest, it, I can move that rest so far past center that the arrow is actually pointed on the wrong side of the string. Um, so yeah, it's been pretty fun to shoot compared to my long bow, a lot less hand shock is kind of the main difference and it's shorter. Um, but just in learning to shoot that thing, I've also gotten a lot better shooting the longbow too. And I've found that when I switch back to the compound, which I have a, a new breed GX two that I'm shooting this year, when I go back to that, after shooting the count or the recurve for hundreds of arrows, 
I find that I shoot that bow better because of the back tension that's required to shoot the trad bow well. So it's very easy for me to go back and forth. And they both have the same grip, which is nice. Exact same grip because it's made from the same company, obviously. And an interesting, you're left-handed as well, correct? Yes, left-handed. Yeah, so that'll be interesting to have a a left-handed person version and a right-handed person version in the same podcast, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, Whether we do tuning or something like that, we'll have a perspective for both. Yeah, that's a good point. Now, you obviously have a YouTube channel, but you don't do any self-filming, correct? No, very little. Um, I did a little bit with just a GoPro, um, primarily just directed at me, um, talking about the saddle while I was in it in the tree. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't do a lot of self-filming at all. Um, I'm not big into it. Uh, That bug never really bit me as much as it bit other people. Sure. Yeah, and I had started filming, I guess, when I was probably 16. So a little over 10 years now. Started with just a real cheap camera that I got off of eBay. And, I mean, it wasn't anything special at first. I had no aspirations to do anything big with it. It was just for me documenting my hunts. I would share it on, you know, what at the time was the Blood Brothers Forum, which is now the Hunting Beast. And, uh, yeah, it wasn't really until probably like 2010 that I started getting a little bit more serious into it and buying a little bit nicer camera. Um, I still kind of always did the, the eBay buy used route to keep the camera costs down, but I've definitely learned a lot over the years in terms of, you know, what equipment you need, to self film with and how to use it best versus what you would do if you were trying to film somebody else, how to set all the gear up in the tree correctly, all that good stuff. And just kind of living with some of the consequences of trying to self film, you know, carrying a bunch of gear in that you wouldn't otherwise be carrying in, taking that extra 10 to 15 minutes every time you set up um, to get all the camera gear ready and then taking everything back down again losing some yeah, of the not, not to mention just you know keeping the batteries charged you know mm-hmm. making sure they're all charged and you know making that commitment of whether you want to get the shot on film or whether you want to let the deer walk if you're not going to get the shot on film right you know, that's, that's a big one and that's definitely happened before um one thing that i've also noticed is sometimes i'll look at the lcd screen which obviously has a lot smaller view and i'll look at the deer and i'll be kind of following it i'll look down at the lcd screen to make an adjustment and then I'll look up and the deer's got me pegged just from looking away from the deer for that, you know, the few seconds. So there's definitely, um, it's definitely not consequence free to try and self film the hunts. But I think a lot of times the, uh, the benefits, at least for me outweigh the, the challenges of trying to add it on. I've actually somewhere on one of them small tapes that they used to use in most, um, camcorders. I have a, a self film the first deer I ever shot with an Osage Orange long bow. It was actually a 68 inch bow, shot a little button buck. Um, and I've got that on film somewhere, but the audio quality of it was miserable. I self filmed it, and that's the only time after that I was done with it. <laughs> so, <clears throat> what are your plans for this season in terms of hunting? What are you going to be hunting? What weapons are you going to be using? Where are you going to be doing it? So this year I've got a over-the-counter um, elk tag, which is for any elk, so cow, spike, raghorn, or bull, um, east of Salt Lake City in the Wasatch Mountains. And then I bought a leftover um, mule deer tag that after, I think it's September 15th or so, is going to be 
available for that same unit. So that unit's called the extended unit. Um, it's archery only in certain parts of it, hmm. and it runs until end of December for elk um, and even mule deer, I believe. So that's the main goal, whether I'm going to take the traditional bow. Um, I don't know. I'm probably going to try to take the Satori after elk and take the compound if I'm going after mule deer just for that little bit of added extra range. And then at some point, um, probably in this fall, I'll probably go back to Missouri and spend a week or so back there around the rut um, bow hunting. Okay, nice. Yeah, for me, we obviously already mentioned the elk trip. Or not the elk trip. It's the elk trip for the other guys I'm going with. They got muzzleloader tags for that week. And I'm tagging along, but I had the lottery mule deer, which isn't much of a lottery because it's like a 95% chance of drawing it. However, last year when I applied for it, I didn't get it. I was one of the 5%. So I got a preference point, and obviously I got the tag this year. Um, and I'm looking forward to it because I think the success rate in that unit's like 35% or somewhere in that neighborhood, which I thought was pretty good considering the elk percentage is like 10% for the over-the-counter unit. Um, and we'll be doing wilderness area there, which means no ATVs, but there's plenty of other hunters, plenty of you know horseback camps, that type of thing. And I'll be taking the compound for that trip. Pretty much, I mean, you know, the extended range is huge out there, especially because I'm not going to be using a tree stand. It's just going to be hunting off the ground. A lot of that area is fairly open, and the distances obviously seem a lot closer than they actually are a lot of times out there. But we saw a lot of deer the last time we went there. We'll be going to the same area that we did, same trailhead. Um, I didn't see any massive bucks, but I saw a lot of deer in general, small bucks and does. And some of the other guys that I was with saw some nice bucks, and I know of some really nice bucks that were taken out there in years past in that unit. A lot of the hunting I did last time was, you know, higher elevation, chasing the actual elk. So I didn't really, you know, plan on seeing a ton of deer, but I'm sure that this year we'll see a lot more. And then and uh, hopefully, hopefully the rough winter they had out there this year didn't didn't hurt them too. Yeah, really I, bad, I, I tried I tried looking at the maps and it didn't seem like that area got hit too hard. But I know a lot of areas got hit really bad this year. Yeah, they it got hit. We got hit relatively hard here around Utah. I mean, they pushed their shed hunting season back uh, two months or so just to kind of give the deer a little bit more time to recover from the hard winter. But I know Idaho got hit really hard. You know, some units they were talking like ninety percent loss of fawns. Oh wow! Um, so that's that's really going to sting for a couple of years. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and like I said, uh, be taking the GX two out there. Um, my arrow setup I'm tweaking. I added, I chopped off an inch on my arrow length for this year from the arrows that I was using and bumped up the tip weight by 50 grains. So I got a little bit heavier mass weight arrow, higher FOC, but I still have a stiff enough arrow to handle it. So far it's been shooting fine out on the range with both the uh, field points and the fixed blade broadheads. However, I've noticed that with the fixed blade broadheads, if my grip is off by just a hair, that arrow will sail six inches at 50 yards. So I actually decided I'm going to take uh, some 150-grain expandables this year. I, there's not a whole lot of 150-grain options out there. So No, that's, and that's something I think is really interesting. You know, you, you do see some heavier you know, fixed blades, obviously, but I've often wondered why mechanical broadhead manufacturers don't look into that. You know, I'm a big FOC fan. Um, if you can get an arrow that can handle it, whether you have to go up to 250 or something like a, a dangerous game, um, 200 spine arrow or something like that, um, you know, I try to build an arrow 
that has a, a mass weight of what I'm looking for, um, but as much of that in the front of center as possible. So I'm, you know, I'm kind of with you. I think I've got all 150 grain heads on my arrows. Um, you know, my trad bows are pushing 300 grains um, up front. So I'm going to try to build, you know, um, arrows for my compound that are going to be pushing, you know, 100 or 225 grains up front for them, hopefully, with a super stiff arrow. Right. Yeah, I think even with my setup, oh gosh, my arrows must be like 470, 480 grains. I'd have to weigh them again just to, to double check. Um, but then I'm pushing that at over 270 feet per second, which should have plenty plenty of energy even at longer range. And hopefully I'll be successful and it can obviously break down kind of that arrow setup and see if there's any changes that I would still make next year or with the broadheads or if I'm going to keep using that. And then after that trip, which is only going to take about a week in September, I'll be coming back here and hunting whitetails in both Minnesota and Wisconsin. My plan is to hunt more Minnesota up before the rut and then start hunting Wisconsin once the rut kind of kicks in. So my ideal scenario would be shoot a deer in Minnesota, late September, early October, have a few days off, do some scouting in Wisconsin and then hunt in Wisconsin. You only get one buck tag in Minnesota in Wisconsin. You get a buck tag for your archery tag and you also get one for firearms. The firearms in Wisconsin is later in November. Whereas in Minnesota, it's right like the first week of November, which is kind of the same week I would prefer to be bow hunting in the rut. Yeah. So that's why I tend to either hunt in Wisconsin or hunt in the archery only area in Minnesota that week. But I'll be doing yeah, just, I'll be doing a hundred percent recurve for deer. This that'll be the plan. that'll be interesting. We'll hopefully see see how well you do with that. Yeah, I, I mean the first year after I built that longbow, I brought it out a few times. But to be honest, I wasn't super comfortable with it, and I never really got a, a, a great shot opportunity, and that was probably, you know, a good thing. And then the second year that came around, I hunted with it a lot more, and I posted a video on the YouTube channel hunting with it all year, and I ended up getting one good shot opportunity at a doe, probably about 23 yards and shot under her. So I'm thinking this year is going to be the year. I'm hoping anyway. <laughs> I'll yeah, be, hopefully. I'll put hopefully a lot of time in. I've been shooting, I don't know how many hours I've spent shooting that bow, but I've gotten a lot better. I mean, I can pretty much, I mean, which isn't great shooting, but it is for me, shoot about a softball size group and maintain that at 20 yards. Um, yeah. Which, you know, like if you're taking a proficiency test for like a, a bow hunting only, only area, that's generally all they would require of you. I can, right. on a good day, I can shoot you know, deadly accurate out to 30, 35, but up in the tree stand, it's, I'm going to try and hold myself to only the chip shots. Yeah. And that's, and that's a good thing is, you know, setting that range for you, whether that's 18 to 20 yards, you know, and sticking to that range and, you know, trying not to deviate from that whatsoever, especially well within your comfort range of the distance you're shooting. Yeah, for sure. It's a lot different, um, for sure. Being out in the woods under pressure than it is shooting at a, you know, a target. One of my good friends, I obviously won't mention his name, but he picked up a recurve probably two months before the season was shooting it in his backyard at the, at the target at, you know, 15 yards or whatever, and started getting pretty good at it. Just kind of, you know, doing the Fred bear snap shooting style, um, which is, I think when a lot of people try and go to traditional, I think that's how you're supposed to shoot it. 
which is a way to shoot it, but it's not the only way to shoot it, and it's not always the most accurate way to shoot it for people that are just starting out. And he actually uh, missed a couple deer, and then before he hung it up and brought the compound back out. So I'm hoping that uh, the amount of practice and be getting some more practice out of the, the saddle and the tree stand uh, before I actually hit the woods and hopefully I'll be able to make a count once the, the shot opportunity is there. Yeah, definitely. It's They're, they're a, um, a humble stick, if you'll call them that. They really uh, <laughs> will put people in their place when they use them, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And then, of course, once uh, late November hits, I'll be doing the rifle season in Wisconsin, which for me, I enjoy because by that time, I've generally been hunting so hard with the bow. It's kind of nice to have that little release where, you know, it's kind of, for me, more a mission of putting meat in the freezer because with that rifle, and I'm generally hunting the same types of areas that I would be bow hunting. They're not long shots. Most of the deer I shoot with a rifle are, within, are inside of 40 yards. Um so for the most part, if I see a deer, I'm able to take it, uh, right. which is, is just kind of nice to have that little break from the bow hunting. Yeah, I don't I do not do a ton of gun hunting, rifle hunting anymore. Um, I did a little bit back in Virginia, um, main, mainly because we did deer drives um, there. It was a big thing there. You know, honestly, wasn't a huge fan of it. Um, I do have a 50 caliber flintlock muzzleloader that I had a guy make for me. Um, so if I go to rifle hunting, that's typically what I'm going to use. Um, but I, I can't tell you the last time outside of work, I shot a deer with a center fire rifle. It's been years, many of years. But for, for work, what have you done in terms of like, what have they required for you for shooting deer? What kind of projects you've been a part of for, for deer reduction or urban deer, that type of thing? Yeah. Mostly doing a lot of, um, urban deer management or deer management on, uh, airports, um, you know, in highly urban areas, um, city parks, things like that. Um, so we, you know, we have to be extremely proficient in shooting, um, because we're in such her- high urban environments. Um, you know, it's pretty dangerous. A lot of people think it's going to be really fun. It is like the first time you go out and then the stress hits you and you got to be, um, pretty proficient at what you're doing and be able to remain calm all the way through it. Um, if you get buck fever, it's not for you. Um, and that's kind of part of the way I've reason why I've kind of shot away from rifles is even outside of work anymore. I don't get worked up when I use a, a firearm because I have to keep that calm collective nature, um, at work. So it's really translated outside of work as well. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I think we're, we're both really looking forward to putting this, this podcast together over the weeks. Um, we're going to do our best to get you some really good unbiased information on gear and, and uh, DIY trips, DIY equipment, gear reviews, our opinions on various topics related to deer hunting or taking trips out west or archery, a whole bunch of stuff. So definitely looking forward to it. Yeah, and, you know, we'll be putting out, um, hopefully getting out episodes every other week to you guys. So you guys should be looking for all kinds of things. You know, we're going to kind of tailor that towards, you know, the season. Um, it's not all going to be hunting related. Um, you know, I know Garrett does a lot of ice fishing and does some stuff like that and some camping as well. Um, so there'll be some camping stuff and stuff like that thrown in the mix as well. Yeah, definitely looking forward to it. Make sure you stay tuned. 
And there you have it, guys. That is episode one of the DIY Sportsman. Their schedule is going to be every other Thursday. So they won't have a podcast next week, but they will the week after that. So make sure you guys pay attention and uh, keep following along.